Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So I want you to think about it for a minute. What are the next rules of how organizations work? And how do you prepare yourself to lead in that sort of a world? So innovation, growth, hybrid work, of course, new ecosystems, they're all requiring in many ways to leave some old skills and some old mindsets behind and to become increasingly more agile. Now, you should be saying to me, okay, great. What mindsets, what skills, and what does agility mean? Well, that's what we're going to answer today. So I think that this next world of work is really going to demand a lot more out of the comfort zone moments. So that's what we're going to talk about today. My guest is Gary A. Bowles. He writes and lectures around the world on the future of work and learning. And his book is what we're talking about today, The Next Rules of Work the mindset, skill set, and tool set to lead your organization through uncertainty. This is a guide to the brave new world in this pandemic, post-pandemic, pre-next pandemic era, however you want to describe it. And he has nine courses on learning mindset and learning agility, all on LinkedIn learning with a total of over 1 million learners. Gary is also the adjunct chair for the future of work for Singularity University, and he helps people understand the impact of exponential change for individuals, organizations, communities, and countries. And he's a partner in the consulting agency, Sharet LLC, um, initiatives with impact is one of the big components there. And I, one of the interesting things that I didn't know until I met Gary earlier is that he's a co-founder of eParachute.com, which helps job hunters and career changers with programs that have been inspired by what happens to be one of my longstanding favorite recommended books, What Color Is Your Parachute? So if you're looking for career advice, eparachute.com. For today, though, we're going to talk about the next rules of work. And you can learn more about all of these at gbowles, B-O-L-L-E-S.com. Carrie, welcome to the show. Wanda, thanks so much for inviting me. Really looking forward to the conversation. So am I. So am I. It's all very, it's fascinating. Um, all of the different components of all the things that you are doing at the moment. But let's focus on this next world of work, uh, the next rules of work. Why are you writing about this? What's the problem you're really trying to solve? So Wanda, I was uh, at a, a great gift in early um, 2020 when uh, my wife sent me off to spend a month putting a bunch of ideas down um, in an Airbnb uh, that would could become a book. and. Uh, None of us knew really in January 2020 that our world was changing so dramatically. But it was a great opportunity for me to just sort of step back and look at what was happening in the world. And we've been talking for quite some time about exponential and disruptive change. Uh, Our founders from Singularity University, Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil, have talked about this for a long time. And it was really important to me pre-pandemic to help people understand how to navigate these really, really disruptive shifts in our lives, in our organizations, our industries, our economies. And then along came a virus. And so that has given us a whole new framework. That's given us a whole new impetus to be able to understand disruptive change. I don't think there's 
many people on the planet would say that they weren't pulled out of their comfort zones pretty rapidly. And, uh, and so now we are at a unique time in human history where I think we need to take these lessons and understand how we can navigate a world of disruptive change. One of my worries for workers and leaders around the world is that in the absence of knowing how to do the next phase better, we will wobble back to what we already have done. And that will mean all of us back to rows and rows of desks, sitting there doing massive and massive numbers of emails. And you wonder if we're actually doing the things that are going to make our organizations powerful and strong and fulfill our lives. So I think we are at a moment in time to make some conscious choices to do things in a different way and hopefully in a better way. Um, You say, though, I think you say that it's not just the pandemic that these trends for change were already happening. So say a little bit more about that. So uh, one of the things that uh, Ray Kurzweil, especially uh, who's written books uh, like The Singularity is Near and The Singularity is Nearer, he's using this inflection point where our technology becomes, quote unquote, smarter than us um, as a way to just help people to understand how disruptive change happens uh, it turns out that there's a range of different, uh, certainly we can take it from an uh, industry standpoint, a range of industries that had disruptors kind of come out of left field and completely change the game. I'm a recovering journalist. I was the editorial director for Six Technology Magazines in the 90s. I'd never do a magazine again. That's not a fun business anymore. And so uh, the dynamics of that, of how especially technology-driven, but not just technology, we've seen it can be done with a virus, it can happen with massive economic shifts. It can happen with war, not just disease. These shifts are becoming more and more of the daily fabric of our lives. And so what I found as I talk to C-suite executives around the world, as I talk to people in communities, as I talk to people in government agencies, we're all wrestling with some of the same challenges, which is that as humans, we're really not, our comfort zone is often in an environment with not so much disruptive change. We can take change, but we can't take a lot of change and we can't take it for extended periods of time. And so that's what I believe we need to not just understand, but embrace, is that there's a new mindset, skill set, and tool set that we need to be able to navigate this disruptive change. Because I, you know, today it's a virus, tomorrow it might be generalized artificial intelligence or unlimited fusion power. Or, you know, there's so many different whacks to our societies and our economies that can happen that we need to not just assume we know exactly what the next black swan is going to be, but we know there will be a black swan that will transform our lives. Okay. So it's not re- it's recognizing that the pandemic is but one of the kind of dr- dramatic changes that can happen. Uh, disruptive changes, if you will. Some of them might be new inventions, things we never thought about, and some of them might just be different industries coming in or different geopolitical dynamics. All right, I get your point. All right, let me turn to something else you say. You say mindset eats skill set for lunch. And that's interesting because how many people out there have just gone through massive education to acquire skills? So what do you mean and why do you say mindset eats skill set? So the analogy that I use in the book, I I sort of say mindset, skill set, and tool set are sort of the three legs of the stool of being able to uh, manage disruptive change. 
And uh, the analogy that I use is I wave a magic wand. You and I are standing at the foot of a mountain. And you, I have given you all the skill set of a mountain climber. You've climbed the mountain dozens of times, dozens of times before. You have all the skills needed. But you look up at the top of the mountain and you say, oh, that's too cold. That's too high. All the skill set and none of the mindset, you won't climb the mountain. I wave the magic wand again, and now you have all the mindset of a mountain climber. You've never done it before, but you look at the top of the mountain and you say, how hard could that be? You take one step, two steps, you encounter problems, you solve them because you're a problem solver. And eventually you're standing at the top of the mountain looking down and saying, how hard was that? And so this is our opportunity as people in our individual lives, in our work, in our industries. If we can embrace a new mindset that allows us to be able to see these as problems to be solved, not just to be done to by disruptive change, but to feel we actually have the mindset where we can solve the next problem and the next one, we will have a completely different ability to apply a skill set. But even if we have the greatest skill set, if we don't have an appropriate mindset, we're going to bungee cord back to the way we did things before, exactly as you were talking about. If we're not conscious about the ways we need to embrace these changes, we're going to fall back into our comfort zones and lose the ability to take advantage of a perfectly good pandemic. Well, or have the next crashing wave um, coming down on us from a direction. And again, it feels like I've had our control and we don't know what to do with it then. So, and I don't mean that as a physical wave. I mean, that as a disruptive wave in whatever way. All right. Four kinds of mindsets. What are they? How do they work that you think are essential? So there's a general sort of directional mindset, which is you can think of it as sort of the land or the platform on which we operate, our cognitive functions operate. And so I'm going to, that's sort of, it's, it's binary in that there's two ends endpoints. Uh, none of us is just one or the other, but Carol Dweck, um, Dr. Dweck in her book, Mindset, talks about a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. So I think of that as sort of the landscape on which we operate. And if you've got a fixed mindset, it's just, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just fine. It's just that in a world of disruptive change, you might not be prepared for the next big change. Whereas if you have a growth mindset, if you as an individual, you as an organization, think of yourself as continually growing and changing, developing new skills, having the capacity to solve the next problem, then you are going to be much more likely to be able to take advantage, not just be done to, not just impacted by disruptive change, but take advantage of it. Well, we did a study then to say, okay, now what does that mean in reality, like in an organization, in our work? And we did an exhaustive study and looked at all the different ways that people are approaching these problems, especially as we're seeing this brave new world of work. And we saw them sort of coalesce into four different areas of mindset. And that is, think of those as cultures of organizations. Think of them as sort of the aggregate mindset. There were organizations that were focused on what I call effectiveness, performance, uh, and, and especially in the Great Reset of the global pandemic, many organizations sort of fell back onto, well, we want people to stay being high performance, <laughs> you know, and, and some of them instituted surveillance technology to make sure people were being high performance. I, I focus on effectiveness. Everybody wants to be effective in their work. Right. There's also growth. Um, that's a growth mindset. <laughs> and so there are some organizations where they believe if we just help everybody to grow and change. Uh, in the book, I point to Novartis, the big pharma company. 
they every single person has a development plan, as a as a, a north star or southern cross that they're trying to grow towards in their own development. Some people focus on what I call involvement, diversity, equity, inclusion. They want to be the most inclusive organizations. And then finally, some people focus on alignment. How do we, as we become more distributed and remote organizations, how do we keep people all sort of in sync with each other? So those are the different mindsets that we see, effectiveness, growth, um, involvement, and alignment. And no organization is just one or the other, but organizations choose priorities in their mindsets of what they're trying to encourage in the behaviors of their workers. All right. Now, is there one that's better than the others, or do all of them have their moment in time in this next world fork? Brilliant insight. <laughs> I, the reason I show them in the book as a Venn diagram is because they overlap. Is If you just focus on effectiveness and not on growth, what you get is a toxic culture. It's all about numbers and metrics and deliverables and OKRs and not about the individual as a growing and changing human being. So over-indexing on any one of them actually can have some pretty negative effects in an organization. An organization focuses just on involvement, on inclusion, and so on, but doesn't also try to meet the needs of its stakeholders is not an organization that's going to be around for a long time. So it's really important. That's a marvelous insight. You need to treat each of these as the kind of, think of them as anchors of mindset. And each organization can have its priorities, but all of them are important. All right. So I can imagine, so if I'm just going to say for the sake of argument that all four are important, and I would want to do an evaluation in my organization to say, how well are we doing on all four? And I might say, look, we're going to, number one, be a growth-oriented company, and that's going to get us to focus on development. And then following behind growth, I'm going to make sure that everybody is involved, that we are going to involve an inclusive culture. And we go then to effectiveness and alignment or whatever order that I choose to put that in. It's going to feel very different than an organization that starts with effectiveness followed by alignment. They're going to have very different dynamics. Absolutely. You know, I think that's a great insight. And especially, I mean, a lot of these we think of as journeys, right? Mm -hmm. So what you're often doing as a human is you have a portfolio of skills. You have mastery of some. You're the person everybody looks to in the room when there's a problem to be solved that you actually can solve better than anybody else. But there's other skills. You might not like them so much. You might not be so good at them. You have a portfolio of skills. You're a constantly changing person and you have this hopefully a pathway that you're following where you're improving on the skills that you like and want to use. Same thing with organizations. No organization is perfect in everything. Incumbents actually have great challenges because they've already over-indexed on something Mm -hmm. that got them to success. And then disruptive change happens and they might need a completely new mindset, a completely new skill set to be able to deal with the brave new world that they've suddenly inherited. And so You're right. If you're focused first on growth, you're going to have a deep commitment to every individual having a learning plan. You're going to hopefully try to what Novartis calls unboss work. That is, you're going to try to have less reliance on traditional managers, which I call management by surveillance, and more reliance on individuals to work as teams dynamically binding around problems. Um, And then if you then bring in um, involvement, inclusion, diversity, and so on, you're going to make sure that your hiring and development practices lift all boats. You're not going to have this 
potential culture that has highly exalted individuals and sort of everybody else's and also ran. And then if effectiveness and alignment are after that, those are actually really, really important. You have to have agreements. What are the metrics of success for our organizations? What, what is the way that you people are successful uh, mm-hmm. to be able to solve the needs for its stakeholders? And you must, in a world distributor work, stay aligned. So it's great to prioritize those. It's a journey. You've also got to see this as a flexible fabric of mindset and hopefully a developing skill set, because you're going to probably need to change as the world changes around you. Great. Is there a way, an easy way to evaluate how effective the organization is on each of these mindsets? Absolutely. So I tend to use a lot of Venn diagrams and magic quadrants in the book, (laughs) just because that's visually how I think. And so uh, the first step for many organizations is I I often tell them, we use the word culture a lot. and And I think we kind of lost the meaning, just like we often lose the meaning of the word leadership. I don't even mm-hmm. use leadership. I use leading as a verb. Uh, but the the rather than culture, if we focus on mindset, first thing, first step is to know what mindset you have inside the organization. Now, there's a thought exercise that I offer is if you could stop five people in a hallway or in separate Zoom calls and you could ask them, what are the three things you need to do in our organization to be successful? And you think your organization is all about growth and involvement and so on. But those five people all consistently come back to you and say, keep your head down, do what the boss says, and don't stick your head above the trenches. Then that's the mindset you have. (laughs) That's the culture you have. So first is to survey. Is you have to survey. You've got to interview. You've got to have constant constructive dialogue throughout the organization. Because often those who lead in the organization don't actually know. They've put the values the, the what they think is the culture of the organization up on a list in the micro kitchens, and then they kind of think they're done. No, you actually obviously, you honestly, you, you, on, you often don't know. Second is that that is a collaborative process to determine what do we want it to be? What do we need it to be? And the more that the organization is aligned, that is that it understands the strategic goals of the organization, every team within the organization understands the strategic goals of the organization, maps its own strategic goals to one or more of those goals, and then every individual on a team has their own strategic goals that are linked to both the team and the organization. If everybody is in alignment, then the collaborative communication process of determining what kind of culture, what kind of mindset do we need? is again, a journey. It's a constant ongoing collaboration. It's not just the leadership team, which usually means a black box of decision-making, bringing the cultural anchors down from the mount on tablets. Right, right. I think that's one of the watchwords of the next new world is it's not all from on high. All right. So I want to go back to some, so four mindsets, just to repeat. There's an effectiveness mindset focused on numbers, metric, efficiency, There's a growth mindset focused on individual development. There's an involvement mindset focused on inclusiveness, diversity, and there's an alignment mindset focused on common goals, et cetera. All four matter. They may exist in different priorities, and it is a matter of assessing where you are and making some choices collectively of where you want to go. Okay. Um. I, mean, this, I asked you this question before, but I'm going to come back at it again. Um, there's so much disruption you talked about already. 
But you strike me in the, in the book, you talk so much about the different kinds of disruption, not just from the pandemic or from technology, but a whole host of other things. Tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing. Like you talk about job descriptions as being something else that is changing. Tell us about some of the other changes. So one of the reasons that I use the framing of the next rules of work is that I always think of sort of the environment in which we operate, the rules that we follow in work. Um, I'm from Silicon Valley, so we don't we say we don't like rules. Truth is, we have just a different set of rules. <laughs> uh, that is a constantly changing landscape. But the old rules of work we inherited from the industrial era, and we've still got plenty of those. <laughs> we've got a five day work week. We often work eight hour days or, or more. We, we still have daylight savings time. We've got all these things we inherited from times when we were working in fields in the United States. And, uh, and this is true in many countries around the world as well. Then there's sort of these new rules of work. And that's kind of what a lot of the tech companies were doing. They already were doing a little bit of the remote and distributed work. They already were doing a little bit of the more dynamic team stuff. The reason I jumped to the next rules is that what we found with the global pandemic is we can change overnight given the right given the right combination of incentives and disincentives. If your company is at existential risk, if you're you would lose your job if you couldn't keep working, it's uh, I think um, Lord Tennyson was uh, had, a, had a quote uh, when you're going to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates your mind wonderfully. Uh, my yeah. father used that in his book, uh, What Color Is Your Parachute? And so. Uh, if, if suddenly you have to change, it's amazing how quickly we can change. Mm-hmm. We can mm-hmm. figure out this Zoom thing pretty quickly. And so uh, what I believe then is with the next rules of work, there's a whole set of facets of the diamond of work that are changing. I believe that work roles are changing. They're becoming much more problem-centric and project-centric. I believe that learning is changing. It's becoming much, much more just in time and just in context. I believe the role of a team is changing. It's becoming much more of a, a band of problem solvers that are continually dynamically binding around the next problem. I believe the role of the manager is changing. It's going from the sage on the stage, as my friend Esther Wojcicki says in her book, Moonshots in Education, to the guide on the side, the one with all the best questions, the team guide that is empowering and enabling the skills of all the people in a team. I believe that the organization is changing. It's going from this sort of box metaphor of hard edges, abundance outside the box, lots of people that want jobs and then scarcity inside the box. Oh, no, we kind of flipped that equation in the great resignation. I don't actually buy that as a label, but I think the general trend around us changing the power dynamic, wait a minute, now there's so much abundance inside the box. We have lots of jobs open. But there's scarcity outside the box. I just can't find enough workers to hire. And so all of those are the next rules of work. They're all shifting. This landscape of work is shifting so dramatically. But often when we are in the pot that's boiling, where the heat is coming slowly up, we don't see those changes quite as clearly until they've already been completely accomplished. And so I think that's the transition that we're in now. I think, I mean, these are, I think they're very powerful because I think everybody is feeling it in their day-to-day personal work, personal lives, but I don't think many people have stopped to recognize how systemic these changes are. And a couple of them I want to highlight because I think they're just really powerful. One is that our jobs are becoming much more problem-centric or project-centric. 
And I can't, I mean, I meet people all over the world, all sorts of different companies, and it's one project after the other. And the projects are driven because of a problem we have to solve. So it's over and over. I hope those projects all join up to something big for the company. But at the same time, it's project. Most of the roles are becoming project driven. I agree with you. I think learning landscape is, you know, we're not going to wait anymore until you reach a particular level and then you go to a particular training program. It's the, how do I find it for myself when I need it in the moment I need it with reminders I need at that moment too. So um, and I love your statement about the teams. It's much more team-oriented as a band of problem solvers, ostensibly people with different perspectives and therefore different opinions and different points of view and different conflict coming together, trying to resolve what do we do to take this issue forward. I mean, those three, for me, completely change how we should be thinking about our next opportunities, how we build a career, I mean, a whole host of things let alone what it means to be a manager and leader. No, you're exactly right. And all of them roll up to a changing organization, right? Mm-hmm. Is yep. um, we In the past, our mantra was kind of, oh, these are change management processes. Oh, so the, you know, the, the, the leadership team, we're going to tell people what we want the company to be in five years. And then we're going to you know, do the math and figure out what's different between what we have today. And oh, then that's our change management plan. Uh, no, actually, uh, I, I'm, one of my courses on LinkedIn Learning on uh, managing change, I say change management is dead. It's all about managing change. Right. And so if you do this, if you unbundle work roles, if you build, make them more team-oriented, what you get is a much more dynamic, agile, and adaptive organization for free. <laughs> you don't have to have the leadership team telling you what the future is. Your workers, your people throughout the organization are going to continually embrace that future because it's the next problem to be solved. Yeah, but then we have problems with December. So this is the thing I find fascinating. I agree with you totally. Like the world, the work world is designed around problems to be solved. That's nimble teams coming together. It makes a lot of sense to me. But our decision-making processes haven't evolved. We're still stuck waiting for some decision from on high. What do we do with this when it's a team coming together? How how do you see companies solving that? So there's a bunch of different things you can do, cultural artifacts that different organizations have have, uh, developed over time to deliberately deal with some of these challenges. And and what the, the basic answer to what you're saying is we need to workshop fixing those things within the organization. That is people, teams need to bind around what is stopping decision-making. But I'll give you a great example. Capital One, uh, one of the magazines I used to run, we did a project with them uh, back in the 90s, and they have a marvelous mechanism that's called assert and respond. So you have some project that you're doing, and there's another person in another group that's on your critical path, and they're not, they're ghosting you. They're not responding to you at all on email or with calls. And you can't get anything done until you solve this one problem. And so what you do is you send them a note. You say, okay, I'm going to assert that this is what your answer will be. I think you're going to sign this off and you have one week to respond to me. And if you don't, then I'm going to go ahead and treat it as if that's what you said. So that's assert and respond. And so that's where a culture of an organization, the mindset of the organization is, well, there are some problems you just can't route around. I'm just going to assume that we've already had this conversation and you did what I wanted. And if you don't agree with me, then just respond and we'll figure it out. We'll workshop it together. And what it does is it is an empowering process. Uh, 
-hmm. so that every worker feels like it's their problem to solve. Don't just ignore that the floor is dirty or that there's a market entry strategy nobody has done. Do it yourself and then assert what that answer is. And if nobody else responds, you were the right one to do it. I know quite a few organizations with people inside that organization who would love this process so long as you don't come back two months later and say, oops, we have a problem. No, you can't go ahead with that after I've gone running through. So it has to be unilaterally employed, deployed, believed, bought into. But boy, would it save an awful lot of wasted time, at least in the companies that I spend time with. Absolutely. I think I read somewhere that one of the biggest frustrations, one of, there are several, one of the big frustrations for the great resignation is that I can't get things done frustration. And this is what causes it. I'm waiting for somebody else to do something in order for me to move ahead. Yeah. Decision-making process as we were there. Okay. All right. So the next question, which I think I probably should hold for after the break, really has to do, well, if this is the world we've inherited, what do I do as an individual to prepare myself to be a stronger performer in that world? So I think, Gary, what I recommend is we take a quick break and we come back to answer that question. So my guest today is Gary Bowles. The book we're talking about is The Next Rules of Work, The Mindset, Skill Set, and Tool Set to Lead Your Organization Through Uncertainty. We'll be right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Welcome back to the show. With me today is Gary Bowles. The book we're talking about is The Next Rules of Work, the mindset, skill set, and tool set to lead your organization through uncertainty. I think one of the main points that Gary has made is that, yes, we know the world is changing, but there's some dramatic changes that are coming that are quite disruptive. The work roles that we have are much more project and problem-centric. Our learning processes have completely changed. It's much more team-oriented, much more collaborative-oriented. The role of the manager is changing, and the nature of the organization is changing as a result. And we were just talking about decision processes that have been changing. Four mindsets that are going to affect your ability to navigate through this change, and they're all four important, but they'll exist in different orders, effectiveness, growth, involvement, and alignment. Okay, if that's the world we've got, Gary, and I'm bought in, I believe it, I want to now future-proof, if that's possible, my career. So what does that mean I need to be focusing on as an individual in these organizations? So we start off by talking about mindset and especially a growth mindset. And uh, again, nothing wrong if you really like to be able to have the same job doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, It's just that that's much harder in a world of disruptive change. So what is more helpful people are finding is a growth mindset. Now, what about skill set? So you have an amazing mix of skills and interests and experiences that is unlike any other person on the planet. Every single person has a unique mix. It turns out that we're, because we're problem solvers from the time that we're very, very young, there are problems that we love to solve. There are skills that we love to use. There are problems and skills we don't like so much. And, you know, work is work. We all have things we don't necessarily like. But as my father found in the book, What Color Is Your Parachute, uh, starting 50 years ago, is that the more you give people the opportunity to do work that they love and that they're good at, that's a superpower. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly helpful to feel that you have in your own life, in your own work, some North Star or Southern Cross that is, what are the skills you want to develop? What are the skills you love to use? What are the kinds of problems that you love to solve? Can you try to keep working more and more of that into your work. So it's at least directional. You at least feel like you're heading towards more and more of that fulfilling and meaningful and hopefully well-compensated work. So I first tell everybody, it's wonderful. It's really, really helpful to have done some kind of self-inventory, some understanding of your own skills so that you can actually articulate them. You can decide which ones you like and which ones you don't. And you can actually feel like you're heading in a direction. You can devise pictures in your mind of scenarios of where you want to go. And there are some organizations that actually encourage people to embrace that and that want every single person to have a learning path. So that's the first one. The second is, what skills then would help you to continually navigate disruptive change? And we've they actually each are sort of resonate with the four that you were pointing out in terms of mindset, uh, but there's a different acronym for them. Um, I talk a lot about pace and scale of change. It just so happens that it's pace. Problem solvers who are adaptive, creative, and with empathy. Why do I say this? So problem solvers, we've already established, that's what you are. You're a problem solver in work, uh, whether you're an individual or you're a team. Adaptive because we've talked about exponential change. I don't don't think this is going to stop anytime soon. I think this is the new abnormal. Creative because that's what's going to keep you ahead of the robots and software. It's your ability to be a creative and adaptive problem solver that will allow you to continually solve unique problems. 
it's the repetitive ones that we don't, none of us like very much that the robots and software are going to take. And then finally, empathy, uh, you know, the old, old uh, problems you had in school, which one of these is not like the other? Oh, why empathy? I mean, that sounds a little different than the others. Well, it's your ability to empathize with the needs of a customer, the needs of your coworkers, the needs of the planet. Uh, Satya Nadella famously has said he believes that the most, the greatest superpower that we have for our own creativity is our ability to empathize with the lived experience of another. And for those who lead in organizations to be able to empathize with the needs of their workers and other stakeholders. And so problem solvers are adaptive, creative, and with empathy, I really recommend to people to practice each of those. They are literally skills. They are skills you can develop over time so that you can continually, they're called flex skills, that are usable in a range of different situations. And as the shelf life for what I call your no skills, the knowledges in a particular industry like high tech or automotive, or you know, those are gonna decay because that world is changing so fast. Those flex skills of pace are the ones that are gonna help you to continually solve the problems of tomorrow. Flex skills of pace. I love it. Great, great phrasing there, but the ability to solve problems being adaptive in an adaptive way, adaptive in your style, adaptive to needs, creative, and empathy. Um, I just have to say, today I did a talk, and I, at the end of my talk, I was saying uh, five things that I think are essential for the future. I, just this, just for amusement, for one moment, ability to sell change, which is to convince other people that change is a part of it. That's the adaptive piece and the problem solver piece, and a little bit of empathy followed by um, ability to influence people to get where you want to go without formal authority. That's a piece of how you do adaptive and creative and empathy, followed by innovation and a willingness to learn, which is your creative piece, followed by um, flexibility, adaptability, versatility, pick any word you want, but that willingness to shift to deal with different personalities all embedded in this notion of a deep understanding of what drives other human beings. Absolutely. How's that? No, well, I like your probably, phrasing probably, better. Because, <laughs> because, well, no, no, because, I mean, but obviously it's spiritually you know, very, very connected there. So very I think connected. it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. Okay. So let's take one of those. Do you have any advice on how somebody gets, for example, more empathetic if that's just not something they're naturally skilled at doing? So absolutely. So first off, again, different cultures, different organizations, different mindsets uh, have different things that they celebrate and, and, and that they you know, that they may uh, uh, de-emphasize is probably the nicest way I could put it. Uh, they, they, they will other people that, that exhibit them, right? So there's some organizations that are meat eater cultures that are focused very much on effectiveness and performance. And if you can think of these as a mandala, <laughs> then you might think of empathy as being the other side of the mandala. And, and sometimes the, the cultures, the organizations will squeeze out be, uh, the ex- exhibition of empathy because it looks like weakness to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're exactly wrong. It's exactly the opposite. It takes tremendous courage to continually be empathetic. So ways to practice it. Um, first off, I would like to say it's the boxing of work in the past, the way we had this compartmentalization of work that often convinced us to think of people that worked around us as not whole humans. That is, I, I show the picture of an iceberg all the time. Mm-hmm. And as organizations, we tend to hire people for this tiny little sliver of skills and attributes that are above the waterline, what we can see 
what their resume shows. And there's all this human capacity, all this potential that is below the waterline. And we said we could care less. And then along comes a pandemic and you're doing the first Zoom call with your coworkers and you say, wait a minute, there's a guitar on your wall. I didn't know you play guitar. Oh, you have a sick aunt in the house with you. You have kids. I didn't know you have kids. You have a dog or a cat. I mean, we didn't know those things. So there's all this part of our coworkers, the people that we have spent so much time with that's <laughs> below the waterline. Not only did we not know it, we didn't want to know it. And so empathy begins with an interest in knowing. It begins in curiosity. It begins in understanding that others have a lived experience that might be different from yours. So the first step is to exhibit that curiosity. Now, some people, especially following the old rules of work, they still want that box. Like, no, no, my work is here. My friends are here and there's no, but they're humans. <laughs> We've seen humans. We're looking into each other's homes now. That is not gonna go away. We can't unknow that we have whole humans working with us. And I'm not saying they all need to be your best friend. What I'm saying is that's a good place to start with your empathy. And I don't mean that you have to do team building exercises you know, that are uncomfortable for everybody, but you do have to have the curiosity to know. And then to figure out what it is as a team that you do to honor the lived experience of everybody. Remember how in the past, a lot of companies, big companies, somebody was working from home yeah. They were taking the kid to the soccer game and you just right. were saying to each other, you know, oh, that's Barry. She's just doing that again. I said, yeah. Why did not she just do her work? Yeah. Hopefully now we have a new empathy for the people around us. And as a team, we can figure out how do we honor that as a team. So we are continually doing no look passes between each other so that when life intervenes, we are supporting it and we're not ignoring it. Okay. So we at least understand the context for what might have happened, how it might have happened. Okay. I believe this is the hallmark. If you are trying to be the best manager and leader that you can be, and you don't start with understanding the whole human being, I think you can chuck out absolutely everything else, including, I would argue, some efficiency, because we can't have those hard conversations around performance and metrics and business processes effectively if I'm not treating you as a whole, whole human being, at least that's my belief. And I agree with you, People, some people are not so comfortable with it. They feel like that's an invasion of privacy. I think there's a way to do it without intruding in people's lives, but it's a really important, really, really important component. Okay, let's talk for a minute about flexibility and agility is the next one that I want to go to. Your adaptability notion. So these words are popping up everywhere in the universe as if saying we need to be agile actually taught us how to be agile. I'm getting rather aggravated with this phrase, as you can tell. So how do we become more agile? What's your advice on this one? So first off, um, one of the marvelous things about languages and the English language in particular is that uh, lots of words have many facets to them. So agility can be, uh, think of it as an organizational mindset, like we mm -hmm. need to be continually agile and adaptive. It can be a set of practices. Agile practices are actually very specific steps that organizations go, right. teams go through. Uh, and it's one of the rare cases, I have a long IT background, with my magazines, it's one of the rare cases where the technology folks actually came up with a technique 
that is used in other parts of the organization. It's like the dog actually catching the bus. Now what do yeah. you do? Oh, they're using agility. They're using agile processes. Okay. So the answer is uh, it's both. It's a mindset and a skill set. And then there's a third, like which is it's a tool set. So, mm-hmm. so the mindset is that you as, again, we're going to go back to teams, you're dynamically binding around problems. And if you have a portfolio of projects that you're working on, there's some projects that are very, very repetitive problems you've seen before. Agility is not necessarily quite so necessary. It might be very process oriented. And so effectiveness is actually what's needed. You need to do the same thing over and over again and do high quality. Okay, so that's great. But you've got other things where you're solving new problems and you need to be much more adaptive or a disruptor has come into your industry and is changing the game. No longer are people going to banks, to tellers, they're using this app thing. Oh, what do we do about that? So agility is both the process of continually iterating, innovating, and, and coming up with new solutions to problems. And it's looking a little farther down the road to anticipate, to understand how you're going to take signals, sometimes very weak signals, and bake that into your processes for trying to anticipate what changes may be coming. And that is a portfolio. You've got a portfolio of projects. You've got a portfolio of activities of the organization. Change, however, we've shown that we have potentially a limited capacity. Here we are. We're still dealing with a lot of the impacts of Omicron as we speak. And yet so many people want to just bungee cord back in the office immediately. And so we have some potentially limited capacity. It's really, really important to have that as part of the dialogue is how we're adapting to change, how each of us is dealing with change, how we can help each other to be able to overcome some of the roadblocks as we're encountering disruptive change and how we can continually build that as a muscle. We can practice that as a skill so that we're much more effective at it. And it turns out organizations that are really good at alignment, um, I pointed in the book to Asana, company builds alignment software. They are really, really good at agile practices because they are continually iterating their understanding of the strategic needs of the organization and its stakeholders and iterating on a quarterly basis to make tweaks that they need to, to make sure that they are always staying at the front end of the curve. Okay. I get where you started this with the notion that the cultural, sorry, mindsets that are predominant in the organization or that are prioritized in the organization have some parallels in the behaviors, the skill sets then that get deployed. And so when you're focusing on alignment as one of the mindsets, that is a thing that's going to help you do this agility and flexibility. All right. Now, suppose I'm an individual that doesn't really like a whole lot of flexibility. I'm much more, I'm not going to say fixed mindset. I'm willing to grow and change, but I kind of like that predictability thing. I like to know what's going to happen and how it's going to happen and so on. Any advice for me on getting more comfortable with agility? Yeah, absolutely. So so first off, I my apologies. If you really like predictability, we were born in the wrong time. So, <laughs> so we're we're yeah, we're we we don't get to choose. So um, and maybe there is an opportunity to hermetically seal yourself in some traditional industry in a traditional job and and not have to worry about it. So uh, but uh, but actually, I'm going to just honor the work of Dr. Dweck again and say, you know, in, in mindset, she offers some very specific ways to develop a growth mindset. Um, now, what we found from 
50 years of what color is your parachute and about helping people to navigate change. Um, I don't have enough college to stuff into a thimble. Um, I barely escaped high school, but one of the jobs that I fell into was the family business, which happened to be, I was trained as a career counselor when I was 19. So I've helped uh, countless people to go through, navigate career and job change. And what we found is that first thing is hope is it's really, really useful to develop some picture of what you want that positive future to be. You don't love change. You like it to be static. But the truth is we all have things that we want. And more the more you can feel that you have a proactive process of building that picture of what you believe you want your life to continue to be. And hopefully it has some growth aspects, things you want to learn, new kinds of problems that you want to solve. We find that helps to be encourage a tremendous amount of resilience in people. The, the okay. more that they have that directional focus in their lives, that's the first one. Second is acknowledge that this is uncomfortable. Um, you're, you have a, a wonderful body of work around getting out of your comfort zone. That's something to practice. Um, you can do these. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful methodology. BJ Fogg um, with Stanford's Persuasive Technology Lab has a great uh, set of practices around tiny habits, mm -hmm. how you can actually change in little ways, little incremental ways to be able to embrace new ways of doing things. And that may be your path. It may be that it's useful to develop new habits that help you to be able to continually adapt to change. And then others, and I, this is unfortunate, but this is what we've seen through 50 years of uh, career change is what a lot of us do is we wait and we wait really long. And then suddenly our lives change for us. We lose our jobs. Our relationships change. We, we have to move geographically. We have I found these transitions in lives tend to come in threes. Um, and, and, and so what ends up happening is we wait too long and then suddenly the decision is made for us. Now we've made the decision because we've often set up the dynamics of how it happens, but then we are forced to change. And that is increasingly, unfortunately, how a lot of people in disruptive change do change is they don't, they're left with, with no, no other choice than, than they've got to be able to adapt right. to this next step. And that's just harder. Yeah, I think that's part of what happened in the pandemic. We had no other choice but to adapt, and we did, and figured out we can do it, and we can do it better than we thought. Like, could somebody asked me today, um, you know, how do I get rid of the fear of getting out of my comfort zone? Was the exact question, and I said, I'm not sure you ever get rid of the fear, but that doesn't mean you don't do something about it. And I love your statements if there are very specific things you can do to work with that uncomfort, that discomfort that you feel from the change. All right, fabulous. So let's turn now, I've been talking about individuals and I wanna turn now to the role of the leader. And I love your phrase that leaders are trying to bring a band of humans together to solve a problem. So what is it then, what's the role then that the leader is playing and how do we begin to think about what leaders need to be doing to achieve this outcome? So I've sometimes been accused of being the word police, uh, and I, and I wear okay. the mantle proudly. Uh, so I, a, I don't use the word leader a lot. I talk about leading as a, yep. as a verb because I believe everybody can lead. But those, let's right. say those with more responsibility in the organization than others. Um, <laughs> fair and, enough. Uh, I'm with you on that right? one. So fair. And, okay. and so, so those with lots of responsibility in the organization, what can you do? Well, uh, a lot of, People who lead in organizations don't like family and parenting analogies because they think they've left that far behind and you know, work is a totally different environment. But I have the same answer 
to those who lead in organizations that I do to parents, which is, it starts with you. It's your behaviors. It's your mindset. I don't care what you want others to do. If you are espousing some kind of new approach, some kind of new way of acting, so if you are not authentically embracing that, then you're sending all the signals to others that they don't need to do that. If you tell people, oh, no, we're going to be teams of problem solvers and we're going to encourage people to be dynamic and bind around problems, that sort of thing, and you walk into the next meeting and you say, oh, that's stupid. That's not the way to solve the problem. Here's how. I'm going to tell you exactly how we're going to solve this problem. You do exactly what I'm saying and then come back and tell me when you've done it. I don't care what kind of culture change you think you're trying to create. You have just told everybody what success in your organization looks like. So parents don't like to hear that your kids are watching every single thing that you do and what you say, and they're doing the Venn diagram of does that match? Is it authentic or is it not? And every single worker in the organization is doing the same thing for those who lead. Okay. Parallel. I had a great example a couple of weeks ago working with a leader who's felt it was his role in this case to jump in and fix whatever had gone wrong for the team. I'm and the, the fixer. Net re- and, and that result is everybody brought him every micro problem and he's frustrated with why do I have so much on my plate to get done? Okay. So we're back to the same thing. You start with your own behavior, you change how you're thinking about it, you change your mindset and that not will lead to some different behaviors. And that's out of your comfort zone. Because yes. you've been the decider, and now you don't want to be because you want others to make good decisions. That's right. That's right. That is exactly what the out of the comfort zone moment, I think, is about. Totally, 100%. And it's hard because I feel like my value is in doing one thing, and suddenly I'm not going to get value out of that same thing. So well, That's a brilliant insight. It's a brilliant insight because that's how you've gotten success up until this part. You. You, you've, you've got all this, all the status, you've got, got all this power. And now we're telling you, oh, you can't use that. You can't do <laughs> that anymore. All that stuff that made you successful, like don't do it anymore. <laughs> it's just hard to do. Uh, personally successful and organizationally successful. Okay, Gary, this is a per- perfect place to ask my last question to give you a minute and a half to answer it. What takes you out of your comfort zone and how do you manage? All right. So first off, thank you for a marvelous conversation. This has been awesome. And uh, so I, what I try to do as much as possible is I, I, I unfortunately, I, I say yes a lot. I, 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 every new new project fascinates me. I try to prioritize and say, I want to take the projects, the problems to solve that deliberately take me a little bit out of my comfort zone. It's not the same thing I've done over and over again. I want to speak to a new group. I want to understand a new industry. I want to be faced with a new set of problems and hopefully, I'm not just going to use all the things I've learned before and just you know have some glib answers. But instead, I, I want to be put in a position where I have I may not have all the answers. I don't want to have all the answers. Instead, I want to learn, and I want to learn from those around me how they would solve these problems. And then I want to use one of my superpowers, which is hopefully synthesizing a lot of those to be able to come up with a joint solution. But, but I want to be put in a position where I don't have the glib and automatic answer. Great. I love it, Gary. And sadly, we have to stop there. 
So my guest today is Gary Bowles. The book we're talking about is The Next Rules of Work, The Mindset, Skill Set, Tool Set to Lead Your Organization Through Uncertainty. I think you're going to find tons of examples of how to develop these skills, what the skills like, how to lead, be leading more. I'll use your language within your organization. You can learn more at gbowles, B-O-L-L-E-S dot com. And if you've enjoyed this episode today, please like us on your favorite podcast server. And if you'd like to know more how to apply these ideas, check out our subscription service, outofthecomfortzone.com. And otherwise, join us next week for more wisdom in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.